So my oldest just started kindergarten this week. Hey, yeah, hey, woo. That's a big transition for him, for my wife and I, for the grandparents more than anyone else. This week, my youngest will start his first year of preschool. Another big transition, especially for the mama's boy in our family. And we've been guided through these transitions through meet your teachers and orientations and kindergarten nights and we'll have back to school night pretty soon. And it's not just so that we can be sure that our kid knows how to find the cafeteria. It's because school education is this dynamic process. You grow and learn and change. And you can get the most out of that dynamic process if you feel comfortable in the space it happens. And you have confidence that you're there for a purpose. It struck me in all of these transitions that we get this when it comes to school, we get this when it comes to employment, we get this in a number of areas in our lives, but when it comes to the church, we leave people on their own. Discipleship is meant to be this dynamic process. Discipleship is a process by which we are healed and changed and transformed. And most times in church, we just leave you to figure it out for yourself. With no teaching, with no guidance, with no help. Here at Spirit Life, we believe we have a particular formula for how discipleship works. We aren't unique in this. You'll find it in a number of other places, so I'm not trying to claim that we're special or we've invented the wheel. Rather, we are explicit in our intent, or at least we try to be, from time to time. So it's worth it from time to time to talk about how and what that formula is. Last week we talked about how conversion, our discipleship, the Christian life, isn't merely one big moment and then a whole lot of waiting. Rather, as I said before, it's dynamic. It takes all of us, all of our lives. We looked last week at Saul's conversion to becoming Paul. Saul, who once persecuted, hunted, hurt, killed Christians, himself became a Christian. But when he became a Christian, all wasn't magically made better. All wasn't magically awesome. He had to be healed. He had to be discipled to become the Christian leader who started myriad new churches and wrote the second half of the New Testament. And frankly, if discipleship is good enough for the guy who wrote the second half of the New Testament, it should be good enough for us too. Am I right? Amen. Today we're going to begin to get into the particulars of discipleship, at least how we try and do it here at Spirit Life. We're going to spend the next two weeks on service, and then we'll talk about small groups. And in talking about this, we are going to stay in the book of Acts, as it's the story of the first church slash churches, uh, and the earliest converts to the church after Jesus' ascension. So we're going to start in Acts 14 with verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him saw that he had faith to be healed and called out to him, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So today we're going to be talking about service and ministry within our community. Service and ministry outside of the walls of the church. So of course to do that, I'm going to read a story about Paul doing ministry, Paul working a miracle, Paul being part of, the he part, being part of healing someone. And now I'm going to inspire you to go out into the community and heal the sick, feed the hungry, be the hands and feet of Jesus in Prince William County and beyond. A flat story for a flat sermon. Not so fast, my friends, in honor of college football being back. Didn't I just say discipleship was dynamic? On the one hand, this story and this sermon are all about helping people within our community. So if you want to take that home with you and spend the next few minutes making your shopping list, I'm not going to stop you. But there's more going on in this story than meets the eye. And I think the details are incredibly relevant and applicable to our work in the world. So let's start by looking at some of the particulars of this story. The first thing we're told is that Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. Lystra was a city in modern Turkey and was located on a prominent road that connected Ephesus and Antioch. It was a Gentile city, which is why Paul and Barnabas are not preaching in a synagogue. In the story that precedes this one, Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. And Luke tells us when they got there, they went as usual to the synagogue. That was their standard practice. They go to a city, they go to the synagogue, they preach. So when Luke says they don't go to a synagogue in Lystra, that tells us there wasn't a synagogue in Lystra because it's a Gentile city. I'm harping on this because it's important, I promise. Before we keep going, let's talk about what happened in that story prior. Paul and Barnabas are in the city called Iconium, where there is a synagogue and they're preaching there. And a lot of people respond to their preaching. They preach powerfully and people are amazed. But not everyone is amazed. The people in Iconium are divided over whether Paul and Barnabas are teaching with authority. So Paul and Barnabas stay for a while, continue teaching, and perform signs and wonders. But there are still two camps. The community is still divided. And the anti-Paul people plot to do violence against Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas flee to Lystra. That's the backdrop, that's the context of this story. So Paul and Barnabas come to Lystra and absent a synagogue, they're out in the open. And they notice a man who can't walk. Paul sees him. In fact, Luke writes that Paul looked directly at him. I like that little detail. Because who here hasn't ever pulled up to a stoplight, seen someone in the median holding a sign, asking for help, has had the cash, and then has immediately stared directly at the stoplight in front of them, hoping, praying, that the person asking for help didn't see you seeing them. Because if they see us seeing them, 
if we look directly at them, we might feel obligated to help. We might feel like we need to help. So it's better to pretend like we don't see. Luke says that Paul saw in this man that he had the faith to be healed. I like to think Paul had the faith to look. So Paul says, stand up. And the man stands. He walks. He's healed. It's a sign. It's a wonder. It's one of the things that Paul and Barnabas did in Iconium. But something different is about to happen here. Something that's deserving more of a story. The people of Lystra are amazed and say, the gods have come to us in human form. They call Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. What a weird reaction. Except it's not really. You see, there was a Roman poet named Ovid who wrote an epic called The Metamorphoses. And within this epic, there is a story of Zeus and Hermes visiting an elderly couple near Lystra. When the couple showed them hospitality, they were, they were rewarded when the gods revealed who they really were. So what Luke is telling us is happening here is that Paul performs this sign, this miracle, in a Gentile city, and the people looking on translate what they saw into a cultural language that was familiar to them. What they saw was something abnormal, something out of the ordinary. It was great, it was awesome. So they had to have an explanation for it. They have to have some sort of frame of reference. So they use what they know. This is like the thing Ovid wrote about. The gods have come among us. And then the priests of Zeus jump on this opportunity. Yes, indeed they have, the priests say. Let's honor Zeus. What Paul does next is perhaps the most important thing in this story, and perhaps our most important takeaway. I'm not a god, he shouts. And if I was, clearly I'm Zeus, I'm not Hermes. <laughs> That's a little Greek mythology joke for you. He says, I'm a human being. This is Barnabas. He's a human being too. We are just like you. We aren't deities in disguise. We aren't the source. We're merely conduits. But let me tell you about the source. Let me tell you about who made what you saw happen today. Let me tell you about the living God, the one who created all there is, the one who animates my life, who makes all things possible for your life and wants to do a new thing in you. Paul points away from himself and points to God in Jesus Christ. This sermon today is about community ministry. And there are two main things that I want to lift up from this story with respect to how community ministry, service in our community, is a necessary part of our discipleship. The first is that community ministry, service in our community, is an opportunity to allow the power of God to flow through us. When Paul talks here about, for a time, God let nations go their own way, but now he wants them together, I think what he's talking about is that his healing of the lame man was part of what God was doing in the wider world. It was part of God's bigger mission in the cosmos. And Paul got to be a part of that. Part of how God was moving and working and acting through healing acts outside of the walls of the church. And healing acts don't mean don't just mean something akin to what we typically call miracles. But healing acts can be hungry people being fed, sick people receiving health care, people receiving adequate clothing. When we partake, when we participate, when we participate in God's actions in the world, God's power flows through us. And we do benefit from that. 
there's like this residual charge that's left within us as a result of our being part of the work. A couple of years ago, we did a massive sock collection at the beginning of the year. And as we got that underway, I remember hearing reports from people that they went online to look up good sock prices and how excited they were to be a part of it. That's the residual charge. That's God's power flowing through us. A couple of weeks ago, our tweens and adults came back from a Helping Hands mission trip. Our students were so excited to talk about what they had done, they joyfully demanded to tell the rest of the church. That's the charge. That's the power of God flowing through us. Service in our community gives us such a boost, such a strong charge that it animates our discipleship and reminds us of how dynamic this Christian life is. But the second part I want to make is this. The second point I want to make is this. Service in our community requires translation. It requires articulation. It requires teaching. In Lystra, the people who observed the healing ministry of Paul in the community immediately put it within their own cultural filters. They said, oh, we know what this is. It's the gods come among us. And in that, Paul and Barnabas were faced with a choice. They could have said, I mean, it's impolite to correct them. It'd be awkward to correct them. Nobody likes the guy that says, well, actually. So sure, sacrifice to us. The important thing after all is the man can walk. Let's not make this moment awkward. Let's not ruin anything. But that's not the choice they made. When we go out into our community, it is highly unlikely that folks will say, you gave me a McDonald's gift card, you gave me bus tokens, you gave me clothes, you are Zeus, come among us. That'd be real weird if they did. No one is going to confuse our service in ministry, our service out in the community, with Greek gods come among us. No one is going to think that we are divine because we participated in the help or healing of people in our community. But they will put it through their own cultural filters just the same. Our cultural filters aren't pagan polytheism. Rather, it's quite the opposite. Our cultural filters revolve around secular humanism, philanthropy, altruism, charity. We are all in this together. We ought to help each other as a sign of our common humanity. We who have excess ought to help those who don't have enough. As Christians, it's not that we, it's not that we, sorry, I've got a lot of negatives in the sentence and I'm trying to keep them straight. As Christians, it's not that we don't believe all that, it's that we believe other stuff too. And the other stuff that we believe, we believe is more important. As Christians, we serve in our community, we engage in helping and healing work in our community because we believe in doing so, we are participating in what God is doing in the world. It's not just that we feel like we owe our fellow human beings certain things like food to eat and clothes to wear. It's not that we feel better about ourselves, we feel like good people when we serve others. It's not that we think we ought to share some of our excess with people who don't have enough. Though we do believe all of those things. But first and foremost, we believe that God is doing something in this world. Something real and something tangible. That in and through Jesus Christ, and now through the church, God is at work in this world. 
And we are called and we are graced as we participate in that work. We go into community and serve because we serve a God who desires the flourishing of all of God's children. And God invites us and calls us to be about that work here and now. When you're stopped at a stoplight and you see directly the person standing in the median asking for help and you give her five dollars, it's both because you have some extra that you feel like someone who doesn't have enough of could use, and also because God loves that person so much Jesus came to die for her. When you give some bug spray or an old or a brand new coat, it's both because you're able and it feels good to help someone else out and also because God's reconciling the cosmos to himself includes people being healthy and warm. When you serve food at Streetlight through their harvest banquet, it's because you want people to be fed and also because Jesus said, when you feed the hungry, you're also feeding me. What I'm getting at and what Paul makes explicit in this story are that our reasons for serving in our community are deeply theological. We believe what we are doing is intimately related to what God is doing in the world in Jesus Christ. And yet, how often are we content to allow the broader culture to dictate what our service means? And often that translation is unsaid more than it's said. So as part of our orientation, we have a fall syllabus for spirit and life. I know teachers hate this, and I'm sorry. It has a ton of opportunities for your own further discipleship and ways you can invite other people in your life into this dynamic journey of discipleship. If you weren't here last week, I'm going to pass some around. Or if somehow between last Sunday and this Sunday you've lost your copy, please feel free to take a second. Or better, if you gave your copy away to somebody else, please feel free to take five. There are a couple service opportunities for you listed in this syllabus. We'll be serving at Streetlight's weekly harvest banquet a few times before the end of the year. Those dates are listed. We'll be collecting coats for the homeless over the next two months. And you can think of other ways that you can be in service outside the walls of this church in the next few days, let alone the next few weeks. Gift cards to give to people in the medians, bus tokens. Acts, a community-wide nonprofit, has a new app. This is kind of cool. Where you can collect food from restaurants and items from other places uh, and deliver them to an Axe distribution center. So if you're out at, I don't know, Red Robin, and Red Robin has said, we'll give away five bags of potatoes. You can say, I will take it. Take them from Red Robin, drive them to an Axe food distribution center, and be a part of how Axe is feeding people in our community. It's really cool. There are tons of ways to serve in our community. So here's my challenge. Serve. In some way. Outside the walls of this church. Within our community. And. Also invite someone in your circle to serve with you. Tell someone about the coat drive. Invite someone to serve with us at Streetlight. Tell someone about the Axe app. And. Also, tell others why you serve. Be like Paul. Serve and tell other people you serve because of who God is. 
because of who God is to you and because of what God is doing in our world. Amen.